Sayung, let me take you back 11 years to your PhD thesis you wrote at Stanford University on the topic of religion in Korea. You were looking at the relationship between religion and the state in the formation of a new belief about modern Korea. Now, without getting too lost in the weeds, what did you learn about the making of modern Korea in terms of the nation's collective imagination? What role did religion play in all of this? And how did that intense and disciplined study of Korean history and ideas prepare you for your later work? Well, I cannot believe you actually dug this up because <laughs> this is uh, such a long time ago and I don't really think about it very often. But um, um, it's um, 19th century was a very interesting time for Koreans because they come to see how small a place they occupied in relation to the rest of the world. And, and this manifests itself as an incredible kind of a struggle with their own identity which isn't to say that they only started thinking about their identity in the 19th century. But um, throughout Korean history, you see this um, wrestling with who Koreans are and, um, and, and what is their importance, whether it's in relation to China and then later in relation to Japan, in relation to the West. And uh, yeah, that's what I was very much interested in and, and, and how that fed the, the understanding of Korea's national identity moving from late 19th century into the 20th century. And of course, religion played a very important role in all this because um, Koreans start to read about the concept of religion that was being introduced at the time, which as a concept was a very new thing mm. because um, belief, as I like to call instead of religion, mm was um, uh, labeled and um, categorized in a very different way from how we understand and relate to religion today. And, and this whole, even the term religion in East Asia really came because of the West, mm. which came and demanded that Asia open up its door. And then they demand that Asia grant religious freedom to the people coming from the West. And then, which, which kind of initiates this process of thinking about what, what is religion and why is it so important for them that they would like us to give them freedom to practice this. And, and over time, as it gets translated and, and transported to Korea, Koreans, many Korean intellectuals start to think about the role of religion as a key component of a modern state. Mm -hmm. But what that also means is that um, they see religion as something that is very important for the nation. And in fact, they go one step further and they think about religion as something that has to be beneficial to the nation. Otherwise it cannot be a legitimate religion. Mm. And this understanding, although it may sound quite opaque, really informs how I believe Koreans relate to religion even to this day, when a certain religious tradition or religious group does something that is seen as being not in the interest of the nation, then they come under enormous criticism. Yeah. Right. I mean, we can think about the churches that were seen as uh, being uh, principal players in the spread of COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the kind of criticism they face. But we can also go back to around 2006, 2007, I believe, when a number of Christian missionaries went to Afghanistan 
Right. That was a major scandal. And they were kidnapped by the Taliban the next day. And then, you know, the, the government had to spend a considerable amount of effort and some say money mm. to get these people out. And, and the, the public criticism of this community was uh, incredibly, incredibly negative. Yeah. And um, so, so these are the kind of things that I, I was uh, thinking about when I was writing my dissertation on. And, and certainly this uh, kind of plays a very important role in how Korean religious communities present themselves even to this day. You touched on this idea of the difference between religion and a belief. Mm-hmm. Would you care to unpack, is religion organized, systemic, and belief is individual, more ideational? How do you differentiate those, so? Uh, so, I mean, this is a, where now we're touching on a very large body of scholarship as to what religion is. Mm. But, um, yeah, belief is something that's there um, even before we start to think of it as religion. For example, today it's very common to come in for many people and say, oh, Buddhism is religion. Mm. No? Taoism is religion, but Confucianism is not a religion. It's a philosophy. Mm-hmm. Right? But why do we draw that distinction? And, of course, there are reasons as to why. They will say, you know, some have gods, others do not. Mm. Uh, some have priests, others do not. Mm. Uh, some have uh, religious texts and others do not. But these, the, this way of distinguishing religion simply from belief is uh, what we do in the modern era. And if you look before the idea of religion came to Korea, then we realized that these distinctions were not made. Mm-hmm. So Confucianism, Buddhism, Taoism, they are equated. But, but we can go one step further and, and look at our own context, right? I mean, we talk about, I wrote something on Korea Expose about uh, the, the strange role of religion in the upcoming presidential election mm-hmm. because of the presidential candidate from the opposition party who really seems to like the company of religious practitioners. Right. And, um, and we can come in and say, this looks backward, this looks... Uh, um, superstitious but but we can also say i mean uh, we we have a spectrum of beliefs and and these beliefs are definitely part of that landscape of korea uh, and and even in politics but also in society at large i thought that um conversation around the opposition candidate yun sok yol was very interesting because it almost seemed like it was the wrong religion like if he if he was pictured next to um a pope, the Pope or a priest, it might have been more acceptable, but because it was associated with shamanism, um, which is actually, I don't know if the word's correct, indigenous or traditional to this area, it was seen as problematic for that reason. So perhaps not that it was religion, but the wrong religion? Well, it also comes down to how we think of religion today. Yeah. And in fact, the fact that shamanism is not a religion. And according to the definition of religion that many people would apply, including many Koreans, and certainly by the Korean churches, which have a very influential role Mm -hmm. in Korean politics and society. You mentioned a couple of stories, the uh, the missionaries in Afghanistan and the uh, some of the churches or some of the alternative churches, I'm not sure of the correct names to use them in the COVID outbreak. And... When I look at late Joseon history, 
and the arrival of missionaries. I'm not sure on your take on this, but when they arrived, these missionaries, they started educating people. They started educating women as well and uh, deaf and blind. I, it seemed at that time that the religions, what's your take on it? Were they kind of progressive? Were they very um, counter to the system that was established at the time, moving things forward? And now the very same religions have become very conservative and they've changed. What's your take on that idea that when these religions or these ideas came, they were they were kind of reactionary, but now they've become more conservative? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing really surprising about that because um, Christianity comes as very much as an outsider force. Mm. And, and so much so that when, when the Catholics first started arriving, converting Koreans, this was hugely controversial in Korea in the beginning right. of the, yeah. And, and we see major waves of persecution and execution of Catholics in Korea under the Joseon dynasty because it was seen as so reactionary, right? allowing men and women to mingle in the same space, um, denying the authority of the court as the only conduit through which the divine mandate or celestial mandate manifests itself. And then when, when the Protestants start coming later, um, they've actually become a little more moderate in the way they um, communicate their messages about what Christianity was. But certainly still in a way that would have seemed very progressive. Mm. But now we're, what we're looking at is Christianity's religion of the, although this is a somewhat difficult thing to generalize about, um, it's become the religion of the establishment. Right. There are, of course, uh, people from the lower income classes who are fervent Christians, but the Christianity has also certainly become very much associated with the elite at yeah. the top. And these uh, mega churches in Gangnam area of Seoul, very wealthy enclave, you know, they have very close connections to prominent politicians, especially in the Conservative Party. Mm. And also, this is a, but a little tangential, but, but many people say that Christian churches have become a venue for conducting business mm -hmm. at the highest level. It allows uh, people engaging in entrepreneurship to form connections to others from the same social and economic backgrounds under the uh, um, tutelage of God and, and using this massive network also to generate business. I, I hear a lot of that narrative and I, I, I do agree with it. How prevalent do you think that is in the day-to-day -day life of Korean politics and the way Korean society is run? Because it, it can be very surprising, I think, for some people to come to South Korea and just see how visible at first Christianity is. Even if you go to the smallest town on the peninsula, you'll find a church with a neon cross on the top. It's, it, it's really there. Do you think organized Christian religion plays a big role in the day-to-day -day politics, the decisions that get made in the National Assembly, the uh, uh, presidential decisions and such forth? Well, I mean, a lot of that would be conducted privately, so yeah. I would have no knowledge of that. But as to the, the, the influence or the, the, the apparent uh, uh, scale of Christianity in Korea. Mm. I mean, we, we certainly need to go back to the military dictatorship to understand this, which um, really did conduct 
campaigns to completely transform Korean society, including how religion is practiced, even down at the smallest village level. Mm-hmm. We call it Semaul Undong, mm-hmm. the new village movement, which was very much modeled after the 4-H movement in the US. And, and one big component of that was eradicating what they call superstition, which meant uh, shamans and fortune tellers and the, the village shrines that were still quite easy to see up until that point mm-hmm. and, and uprooting this tradition. And then, and then essentially introducing a church in its place. Right? And, and, and that's really the beginning of all this. Uh, and then we come to the, the current period where, as I said, um, it may be difficult to see just what kind of intimate relationship that uh, these uh, individual churches or pastors might enjoy with prominent politicians. But it is also not uncommon to see politicians going to these churches and paying homage mm. uh, as a way of uh, courting Christian votes. Sure. And, and one area where the influence of Christians have definitely manifested in the way that the, the discourse about enacting an anti-discrimination law in Korea has unfolded. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been stalled for years now. Yeah. I think more than a decade at this point. And, and we were looking briefly at the fourth attempt in the National Assembly to legislate this. But obviously, it's not going to happen now because we have a presidential election coming up next month and and nobody wants to touch something as controversial as that, especially considering the opposition coming from the Christian lobby. Yeah. Yeah. If only there was a human rights lawyer president with a National Assembly majority, maybe something could get done. I'm not sure. But it is interesting that you talk about that. under Park Chung-hee, that institutionalization of the Christian religion from the villages, the eradication of the superstition. And I guess they would have also had a, like, a captive market is the wrong term, but in a military society where men are doing military service for two years. And from what I've heard, the sort of chapel and the services inside the military are a very uh, important part of that lifestyle for many people. Do you do you miss studying religion and doing that? I know you've kind of I believe you've left academia, Seung, and you've gone away. Do you do you miss studying that? Do you still do it or? I mean, what does it mean to leave academia? Most of my friends are academics mm. and um, yeah, I may go back to teaching. But um, I mean, I, 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 this might be a good way to transition from all this to to Korea Exposé and journalism, because right. um, my, my concern with academia like eight, nine years ago was that, I mean, people around me, they know so much. They know a lot more about Korea than I do because they're very serious academics, unlike I am. And, um, but, but somehow their voices were never really heard. Right? Partly because they have to write their academic literature, articles, books. But also I would see in media how many people who would comment on Korea really did not have academic credentials. And, and, and I sometimes had trouble with the way they would present Korea. But, but I mean, some people are better at um, carving out a role for themselves in, uh, in this industry. Mm-hmm. 
So I thought, okay, maybe um, um, something needs to be done. And, and that's why um, one evening in 2012, no, 2013, I was so angry about this. And then I kind of whipped out a draft about Korean education. Hmm. And then I, I, I sent it to the opinions editor at New York Times, and they ended up running it. And, and that was actually the beginning of all this um, beginning of Korea Exposé. And, and beginning of, I guess, my foray into uh, non-academic writing. It does definitely give you more exposure. It gives you more reach. That academic one is very, like you say, it's very specific, very focused, but it can be very specialized and it doesn't reach. So going to the expose, like you said, that article to the New York Times, when I looked at the expose, your website says that you found Western journalism about the region to be too often without substance and you thought it a problem that many foreign journalists do not speak Korean nor have any insight into the country. So can you explain some of that for us please Seung? and can you perhaps give us some uh, description of how that shallow journalism was manifesting? What did it look like? What were you seeing? What was problematic that drove you to start the expose? Yeah, so let's talk about that piece about Korean education. I, I was reading several articles in English, in French on this topic, because um, um, I forget where exactly it came out, but there was a report that Korean students are unhappiest in the world. Right, so, okay, Korean students are unhappy according to this report. And then people write articles about it. And how do you explain this? How do you justify that? And then they will look at surveys, they will look at uh, uh, studies on how many hours the Korean students study. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so that is a part of it. But, but my question was, do you really understand how unhappy they are? Like, how can you describe it in a way that others could understand? Mm. Yeah, people who know nothing about Korea would see just how miserable the system is and how much suffering these students undergo. And that sense was missing. Mm. And as somebody who actually was born in Korea and went through this education system partly and had an older brother who completed this process, shall I say, and, and, and the problems that he faced as a result of this, I, I thought, okay, if you don't know that you cannot write this and instead of waiting for somebody else to do it maybe i will yeah give it a step and and that's really um what it was and and somehow it was uh, incredibly popular right? i i had always assumed that but people kind of know how miserable korean students are don't they <laughs> yeah and then it came out and then I thought that uh, I saw that it was shared like 13,000 times on Facebook. And then I was getting all these interview requests from BBC and some uh, institutions in Scandinavia. And people were curious. Mm. People were like, this is eye opener. And, and when I was, uh, yeah, when we were getting close to publishing this, my editor asked me, we need a bio from you. And I said, I am a retired academic. And, and he said, no, seriously, like what are you doing now? Mm. 
and 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 that's why I was talking to some friends who shared this view with me that there's something profoundly wrong with Western reporting about Korea, mm-hmm. and um, and they said maybe this is a start, right? Maybe maybe instead of waiting for New York Times to regularly run uh, pieces like this, maybe we need to create a platform where we can say it regularly. Mm. So, so that's why um, Korea Exposé was born. I did not come up with this name. Uh, <laughs> a friend with a French background actually suggested it. And um, yeah, and then we create a website, register the domain. And I told my editor I would be the editor of this new uh, online news magazine specializing in the Korean Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Now you've said that a French person came up with the name, all of a sudden just a light bulb went on. Oh, it makes sense now to, to see it <laughs> like that. Um, in that piece saying that you wrote for the New York Times, and please correct me if I'm wrong, was it that, because I look at your writing and I try to learn from it and how you do what you do, uh, is it the case that you're you're writing about what's actually happening and what's taking place rather than just using statistics and rather than just finding things on the internet, but it's about how things play out in real life, how they feel, how they smell and, and what's going on there. Is that part of it, do you think, with the expose and your work in that, not just the statistics, but the, the reality, or is it something else? I mean, you, we can think of journalism as a... Um, I don't want to call it a discipline, but um, it's an industry that purports to tell the truth, to describe a certain reality. And and how do you achieve that? Right. So convention calls for reporters to be on the ground. Of course, they do some research, they interview people and they get quotes to put into the piece to give it a little uh, color. And, and, and the sense of the, the place that they're describing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a valid approach if it's done well. Uh, in my case, um, I often call on my personal experiences, mm-hmm. but also I mention what I hear from my family, my Korean friends, uh, precisely because that is part of this feeling right. on the ground. It's part of that perception. And, um, and, and what I find problematic with the way Western media often does it, especially by sending people who do not speak the language or doesn't know the country, is um, they already have a very limited pool of people that they can access, right? I mean, they could go with a translator, but they often call on their friends, people they know, mm-hmm. can you give me a quote on this? Or English speaking, academics who are already at disposal so so i i that's partly what i have found somewhat troubling about all this enterprise and 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 instead i thought okay um and the the very act of describing a reality i do believe it's a very subjective enterprise mm-hmm. i mean it comes from our own perspective and, and, and as somebody uh, who is kind of Korean, and I say I'm kind of Korean because I left Korea when I was 14. And then I was going back and forth um, ever since then. 
Um, but um, having that connection to Korea, I, I felt it's a different perspective. And also when I was recruiting others to write about Korea for Korea Expose, I, I wanted these people to have that kind of, uh, let's say a more complex point of view, whether because they have a Korean background or whether because they're foreigners, but lived in Korea for a long time. Mm-hmm. Maybe they, um, they study Korea as a professional, as academic. And, and I felt that we do need to privilege these perspectives over the perspective of the conventional Western media, which is after all from um, of the people who do not know Korea. Mm-hmm. Right. I find great value in this idea, just listening to you talk about how journalism can or could be done. Recently, in the last couple of years, I've found great value in the idea of not talking about people, but talking to people. It's very easy to write about groups and and things like that, but to go and actually talk and communicate, uh, talk with people, talk to people, I found so important. When you said, Seung, that you left at the age of 14, and do you think, and I asked this question because when I left the United Kingdom, I felt that I finally understood it after I'd left. It was when I had the comparison. It was once I was out of that goldfish bowl that I could then look at it and I gained a different understanding of it, which perhaps wouldn't have been there, I don't know, if I had stayed there. Do you think having, and I'm not sure how to describe it, so please use your words, having that multicultural experience or however it might be, does that give certain insights in any way? I think definitely, yes. My partner is German, who often says that uh, leaving Germany and actually spending time in Korea was an eye-opener, not when it comes to understanding Korea, but when it comes to understanding Germany. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's when you start to see what is done well and what is done poorly. And and it was completely the same for me. And, And I didn't just live in Canada, uh, I've had the privilege of being able to live in quite a few countries at this point. US, France, Bangladesh, China, and Germany. Wow. So, so uh, yeah, you and that's when you start to see, uh, like you start to compare mm-hmm. and evaluate and, and, and also see how uh, when you are inside the country all your life and judge something, um, it, it's, um, yeah, it, it does not really, let's say, conform to, uh, it's not necessarily objective, shall we say. Right. And, and also, you become very invested in your identity as a person from that country. Like, so being a Korean, you want to defend it mm-hmm. from criticism, even though uh, among yourselves, uh, you may be very open to saying negative things about your country, but when you are talking to people from outside, yeah, you do not want to share these things. You do mm. not want to reveal things. Mm. And um, so not only you become defensive, but you become overly, let's say, praising uh, of your own culture. Yeah. And, and this is a tendency we see, I think, not just in Korea, but everywhere. 
and and coming from having spent time outside Korea, I think that gives me the comfort and distance necessary to say sometimes rather um, let's say unpleasant things in to the uh, to the ears of uh, Koreans in Korea. Do you? That's one of the things that the expose does. I think the career expose does, um, in that it seems to be. All journalism, I think, is trying to be honest and truthful in a way, but you don't hold back when you feel like there's a point to be made if it's praising Korea or criticizing Korea. Have you received any, what's the word? Have you received any blowback? Have you received any comments from other Korean people saying like, you shouldn't be saying this about the country. Can you please be a bit nicer? Does that happen at all or? Is it all fair game? I ask because I've had some some people tell me, David, you shouldn't really say the word Heljoson. You're not Korean. That's a Korean thing. We can say it. You can't. And, and so I listened and I respected them. But I'm just wondering, have you had any people tell you to like calm it down a bit? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's gone beyond <laughs> saying I should <laughs> calm down. Um, I think the I I don't call it blowback because I don't really process it as a blowback. Sure. I mean, I, I see that um, some Koreans are deeply uncomfortable <laughs> with what I say. And, and, and that's okay for me. Mm -hmm. yeah? I think the biggest, uh, the biggest example is um, when I was writing the, about the, the controversy in Korea over the Yemeni refugees who were arriving in 2018. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and then it was like, uh, if you were just to look at the Korean reaction at the time, uh, the number of people signing the petition to the president, uh, asking him to block these people. And at that point, we had, what, 260 Yemenis in Jeju. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was like, let's just calm down. But I think uh, it's what I said at the end that really made people upset. I said, imagine there's another war on in Korea and then Koreans become refugees and you're trying to go somewhere safe and they turn you away on the same ground mm -hmm. as you want to turn away the Yemenis. <laughs> like what, what right would we possibly have at that point to complain? Right. And then I think the Koreans... Um, I, I think there was an article about me, I think in Chungang or Chosonilbo. Mm. And then and then the comments were, let's say, say, not very flattering. But actually, this kind of reaction also gives me the conviction that, yeah, I mean, when you make people upset, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there can be two reasons. One is that you did something terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. But another can be that you you said something that kind of gets to the heart of the matter. And, and that also has the effect of making people very angry. And I try to, yeah, objectively evaluate these reactions and, and make sure it's the, the second and not the first. Because I am not God and, and not everything I say is right. It's always worth checking, yeah. But I, yeah, sometimes we, we have to check whether this criticism is real or not. And then there's always going to be this kind of criticism, I've noticed. It, it, it becomes very difficult to avoid it. You mentioned that um, there was an article about you perhaps in the Joseon Ilbo or Jungang Ilbo. So if we use that to look at the domestic journalism scene, 
in Korea mm-hmm. and try to get some of your take on that. Um, although I think there's also clearly a global problem to be addressed with journalism. Um, in one interview, uh, you said saying that um, they, which is print newspapers, they thrive on this revenue stream, which requires them to sacrifice their integrity. These conventions are an illustration of what is wrong with Korea as a whole, which is why having these new companies is not just to show that we can make money in a different way. It's also to show we can do things in an ethical way. So there you're looking at the problems with print media in Korea. What are those problems? Are they still there today? And how do you understand the domestic uh, media scene in Korea? Because Korea Exposé is part of that, and I want to get into where it fits in. But how do you see the broader uh, landscape of Korean journalism at the moment? Yeah, I mean, one word I would use is mess. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, when I when I read descriptions in the Western media about Korean media as being vibrant, that's a that's an adjective they like to use very often. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is vibrant because it's big. I forget the exact number, but I believe there is more than ten thousand registered media outlets in Korea. It does not mean that all of them are legitimate. It just means they're registered and they're out there. And especially with the internet today, mm. so easy to it's become so easy to publish and call yourself media. And okay, I mean that's not necessarily a bad thing, but when you look at the quality, mm. right? It's uh, it's another question. But it's more importantly about the perspective and the bias, right? I mean I know that you know. Korea is a deeply divided society ideologically, and 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 the the media outlets they kind of toe the line depending on who their audiences are. Mm-hmm. So Joseon Ilbo has its own demographic, its readership, and and they're very careful not to really depart from what the readers expect from them, and and not because everything their readership expects is correct, but because they know that if they write something different then they they will suffer mm-hmm. maybe the subscription goes down the revenue drops and then of course the other issue is uh, that sometimes they plain make up stories and and i know this also from my personal experience being interviewed by some domestic media where they would literally make up quotes mm-hmm. that i never said and attribute them to me and and I have I yeah and I'm not the only one to come out and say this and journalists do very often. Mm. Another thing is uh, how they use their influences media to essentially extort money out of uh, advertisers. Uh, uh, I didn't write about this, but a journalist named John Power, who has gone on to work for Al Jazeera now, yeah, he he, he did a quite an in-depth story on this. Mm-hmm. And um, they they write something negative about a certain company, and then try to get the company to uh, to pay for advertising in that paper, uh, and then the negative article disappears. Yeah? And if they don't, uh, let's say, meet the demand, mm-hmm. then there will be more negative reporting about that company until the company feels like it has no choice but to give in. So that kind of practice, which is um, not just on the right side of the political spectrum, 
when it comes to the media, but also uh, takes place on the left side of the political spectrum. And, and, uh, and the convention in the Korean media that once you become a department head, then you're no longer a journalist. You, you are a salesman or a woman because your job is no longer uh, writing stories. Your job is to go out there and get revenue for the paper mm-hmm. in various ways, including in the way that I just described. So this is just one example. Do you, this is a rather trivial question, but it's come to me a couple of times hearing what you've said about uh, quotes wrongly attributed to you and other articles. Do you Google yourself sometimes to see what people are saying about you? Uh, I mean, if I really want to know what people say about me, then I should probably go on neighbor. Yeah, sorry, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I did it only twice, mainly because of, uh, it was that Yemeni situation and I was generally interested in seeing what kind of opinions there were. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, but otherwise um, I don't really do this because uh, I don't really see the point of going out there and um, reading these comments because um, uh, one thing I've learned from doing uh, writing online is that people who like you tend to not say very many things. Maybe they drop your personal note, mm. but uh, they're not out there waging war against you mm-hmm. on mm. on discussion forums and on internet portals. It's always the detractors. Yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, constructive criticism is useful. But um, when I sense that the criticism I would read is maybe not constructive, then I just tend not to pay attention. As uh, Taylor Swift said, uh, haters gonna hate. You shake it off. I think she said that as well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You might have noticed with me, I I, I think I've done it on a couple of yours, but sometimes I make a point of just saying, I, I like this article or I like this thread. I, I don't really have anything to add. Like there's always this, well, I have an opinion. Sometimes I don't, but because I know it messes with my algorithm. And if I'm only commenting on things that bring me frustration or things that I want to criticize, that's what I'm going to see next time again. And so I try to beat the algorithm by commenting on things that I like, even if I don't really have anything to say other than like, that's pretty cool. Or I like that, you know, and that's my little way around it. Um, we talked a little bit about, um, on the right and the left, the practices used in Korea and other places in order where it's not so much journalism, but it's making money to survive. And I want to look at this right and the left because I instinctively know the right and left bias in, in British media than other media around the world. And I think sometimes when people from outside looking in at Korea, they don't always see that division. It's just a Korean newspaper, so therefore it must be good. And they don't always understand that it could be heavily slanted to one side. With the Korean expose, and, and please again, correct me saying if I, if I misspeak here, I always got the feeling that it worked from a rather liberal or a progressive perspective. Of course, there are many different writers and contributors and they all had their own views but in general the career expose seemed to address issues such as not exclusively but also feminism ethnic and sexual minority rights inequality gentrification and more 
and I thought it was good to see these things being covered in depth in English. Was this a conscious decision? And can you tell us where, if at all, you position the career expose on the political spectrum and why? <laughs> um, a university professor of mine once showed me a result of a survey that he had conducted in his class. Hmm. He had asked um, his students to, um, he had given his students a list of um, English media Korean outlets uh, English language Korean media outlets rather, and then uh, ask them to position them on this uh, ideological spectrum. <laughs> and, uh, and, and someone had put Korea Expose as extreme left wing. <laughs> and and I, I saw that and I thought, I said, really, are we so extreme? Um, this was never really a conscious decision, uh, but I suppose I, I am rather progressive. <laughs> for lack of a better term. But this is something that is shared by people. Going back to the, the discussion about my background, mm. um, people, Koreans who have spent time overseas, uh, I mean, there are usually two breeds. There are people who become so disappointed with their new country that they actually become even more nationalistic than the Koreans themselves in Korea are. Mm. But there are actually more often people who move abroad and then start to question the rhetoric about the Korean nation, which of course is, uh, let's say, more friendly to the left and to the right. It's usually the Korean right that wants to defend the nation and then the left, which wants to question these assumptions about uh, what it means to be a national collective. Mm. Although in Korea, I mean, there, there are other ways that the left can be just as nationalistic as the right. So for that reason, I think uh, me and people around me, we tend to have a, what would be considered a progressive point of view. Mm -hmm. And also being abroad and being exposed to other ideas about or values about the world. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, um, that's probably why the writers for Korea Expose have traditionally been, let, let's say, um, What's the word that I'm looking for? Liberal? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we're certainly sympathetic to women's rights, gender equality, mm. LGBT rights, and, and of course, um, uh, some of us be having been LGBT too, mm. that has a role to play in all this as well. But, but also another interesting thing to point out is um, many of us actually um, come from fairly privileged backgrounds too. Right. And, and so much so that an inside joke in, at Korea Expose at one point was uh, like, are we gold spoon media? Mm -hmm. huh? <laughs> because uh, um, I mean, uh, working for Korea Expose has never really been a lucrative opportunity for anybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But many people voluntarily did that precisely because, um, yeah, they, they didn't have to think too hard about like what they're going to for do for money when they're in their 30s and 40s and 50s mm. and 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 yet we have this point of view right being critical of korean capitalism being critical of the the business practices so maybe that's also kind of an interesting irony of korea exposure when i it, it it's fascinating to hear and i i don't 
use words like liberal or progressive in any derogatory way. And I think if maybe the expose was in a different country, it wouldn't be seen as extreme left. It's just because of the environment that it is that it gets pushed there. When I was reading works by, for example, Inamhi, uh, her work on the Minjung, uh, and other works on the arrival of the LGBT movement in South Korea, I, I noticed that sometimes these ideas did start at the elite universities. They started with the educated people and then they kind of filtered down. And you mentioned this idea of the, the career expose gold spoon media or something like that. I'm not quite sure what my question here is uh, saying, but is there something do you think in Korea where the more education one has, not every time, but it can lead to having more progressive views. Is there a correlation? Is there a causation? Do you see any link between those two things? Well, that's a perennial criticism against higher education, not just in Korea, but everywhere, right? Mm. And um, looking at the, the, the Republican accusation against uh, universities in the US mm -hmm. as being liberally biased, Right. Yeah. That's um, and and you could say that similar dynamic may have existed in Korea too, although it certainly changed as well. Mm. Right. I mean, nowadays, especially with education in Korea being uh, often seen as um, unaffordable, although not to the same level as in the U.S., mm -hmm. and that um, elite universities are really a con it's a channel for the elite children of the elite to use as a platform to to move on to elite jobs mm -hmm. yeah. and and many studies in fact do support this that if you look at the uh, income level of the students at let's say the Seoul national university and the kind of jobs that their parents have mm. right, it reveals that in fact um hard to say at this point whether higher education is really promoting the kind of liberal way of thinking that um, that we're discussing now and uh yeah was there um when just on the first period of the expose and we'll come to the renaissance afterwards but in that first period when you founded the expose career expose 2013 and the new york times article was there anything else around at the time that was doing something like that in Korea, in the Korean language or in English? Did you feel you were doing like completely going into blue water? There was nothing else there or is there anything else there now? I'm not trying to get you to big up your competitors or something, but I'm just curious how you see that particular part of the, the field. Hmm. No, no. Um, I think in Korea, certainly there were similar outlets, um, there was something called Slow News that is similar to Korea Expose in that you know, they were featuring what you might term more essays rather than news reports, mm -hmm. but about different um, you know, contemporary issues in Korea, but in the Korean language. And so much so that I actually thought about reaching out to them and talk about like, content sharing. Mm. But and it's always difficult to translate something straight from Korean and make it uh, accessible to a non-Korean readership. So 
That's why we didn't do that. But when looking at Korean media landscape back then, I did not see, uh, when looking at the media landscape back then, I did not see anything really that was similar or maybe I was just ignorant, but no, I, I saw Korea Times, Korea Herald, Jungang Daily, mm. uh, English editions of Joseon uh, Ilbo, Han right? I mean, they're all translating their Korean content for the most part with some editing. It's gotten much better, I can see. And, um, and I always thought, okay, I mean, if you write an article like this in English for people who don't know much about Korea, then it's just uh, opaque. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. It's hard to really, I mean, people read it and people see names, people see facts, but they ask like, what does it really tell us? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then of course, uh, going back to the stories that we were talking about in the Western media. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's produced by these people, uh, correspondents or uh, freelance reporters on the ground. Uh, most of whom don't speak Korean, right? Mm -hmm. Writing in a way that uh, conforms to to the convention of the industry, right? You have the lead, mm -hmm. and some interesting anecdote, and then you have the nut graph, uh, like this is what's happening, you know, uh, and then have quotes from that side, quotes from that side, and then and then you kind of wrap up, and and I read it, and and I was like. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, can we really do this better? And then second was, as uh, you, I think you were pointing out in the list of questions, uh, why is it always about the same stories, right? Uh, Samsung, technology, and then um, K-pop, and then what I call the weird Korean stories. Yeah. You know, like, look how much plastic surgery Koreans get, mm. right? Look, Koreans going on YouTube and broadcasting how they're eating food. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or as recently, as you pointed out, like, look at the Koreans with their COVID mask that only covers the nose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I see that and I ask myself, I mean, Korea is, uh, it's a complex place. And there are many, many stories. Yeah. Why, why is it always the same? And, and here, I think uh, I would like to point out that there seems to be an echo chamber effect. Mm -hmm. So when you have people who can only access things mainly in English, then they go on and they read things in English mm -hmm. written by other people who only speak English, mm -hmm. who wrote things based on what they read in English. And, and it's just like a loop. Right, and then and then that kind of builds this perception or reputation of a place. We and I call these things grand narratives. Every country has a set of grand narratives about it in the in the media. You know, North Korea is the evil dictatorship. Yeah, uh, and then we see these stories that reinforce our understanding of how evil North Korea is a dictatorship. Mm -hmm or Bhutan is the happiest country in the world. So we see stories again and again about how happy the Bhutanese are. Mm. And having been to Bhutan and had, knowing Bhutanese personally, I assure you, Bhutanese are not happier than we are. Mm. So in that sense, this is fake news. 
And of course, Korea traditionally, and Japan to an extent, these are the weird countries of Asia. Yeah. Right? And then journalists keep on writing this, and I don't blame them 100%. It's also the editors at the higher level who commission these stories because the only thing they can read about these countries is again, in their own language, maybe in English. Mm-hmm. And that's the cycle that I really hope that we could break partly through Korea Exposé. Breaking apart that grand narrative that keeps reinforcing itself, yeah. When you mention, saying the the slow news at the start that was doing things in Korea at the same time as Exposé, have you considered doing that? Because I've, I've often thought about like also writing a, a column in Korean in the Korean language, because I know I'm only writing to a certain portion. And the expose is going there. Have you thought about trying to do simultaneous releases or anything like that? Or just too hard? Or I mean, it takes work. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had several offers. Uh, there was a person who wanted to do a Spanish edition because there is a massive K-pop fan base yeah, that is yeah. curious to know more about Korea in Latin America. Yeah. And then there was someone who wanted an Arabic edition. And of course, we thought about publishing in Korean too, but all these offers came at a time when I was running Korea Exposé as a company. Mm-hmm. And, and we had, and I had 10 employees and maybe dozen business plans. Uh, and, and I was really burnt out. Sure. So I didn't really have the energy or wherewithal to really consider these possibilities. And also, I always think about how yeah, um, it's not such a straightforward thing to translate an article and expect that it is right, has, that it has the right tone, right substance for that audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's especially difficult going from English to Korean because the knowledge level is different for the Korean public. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so, so these things came and went, and, but it's something we could consider again at this point, or we will see, because anytime you do something like that, it's more work. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the reason that I wanted to bring back Korea Expose in the current form, which means that I mainly do the writing and sometimes I edit things by other people and I don't handle any kind of technical aspect of the website, including payment, because I, I know from my experience that if I try to do all that, then I will burn out again. That's, it's great that you don't have to handle the technical aspect. You can just do the writing. And so you mentioned when the career expose came back soon. Now, it was gone for a while. I'm not sure of the exact dates, but I used to use sort of Korea Exposé materials for my Korean studies lectures. I found them a great resource for students. And then all of a sudden it, it's gone. And then recently it came back and I was so happy to see it back. And I shared it on my social media that it was back. Was there a particular moment that inspired you? Was there a particular story or an event that made you realize the world needs the Korea Exposé again? Was it? Was it out? Was it an event outside of you? Was it an eternal event? Can you just tell us how and why it came back, Seung? First of all, I think um, I I want I want to say that um, 
nobody's ir irreplaceable. And uh, certainly Corey Exposé is not irreplaceable. Um, I folded, well, Corey Exposé folded uh, in 2019, officially, mm -hmm. because, um, well, I was pointed out and, um, yeah, and also I had become deeply disillusioned about Korea as well, having gone through um, this uh, incredible period of hope accompanying the election of Moon Jae-in, the current president, who will be leaving his office next, uh, sorry, in May. Right. And, um, and, and there was so much optimism about what Korean politics could achieve, like what potential Korea has as a collective to become a better country. And then, and then those expectations were dashed over time. The usual familiar cycle of corruption, nepotism, and also the backlash against um, feminism uh, and the and, and kind of the stalled position of LGBT rights, mm -hmm. and all these things combined just became too much. And I said, enough is enough. Um, nothing would change. Bye. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that was my feeling. And then, and then I also stayed away from social media for many months, even up to a year or if not longer. And that's when I also started to see slowly that things uh, are also not changing with regard to media. I had hopes that um, the Western media was getting better, partly because Korea is becoming better now. Mm -hmm. And also I could see on the ground how many of these Western media outlets were hiring other people who had more expertise, mm -hmm. you know, bilingual, um, Koreans, also lots of women, mm -hmm. many of whom are my friends actually. And, um, and I thought, wow, at least on the personal, uh, not personal, but on the, on the level of uh, employees, Mm. Uh, there seems to be a fresh blood and this is a good thing sure. and, and soon enough um, yeah Korea Expose does not need to exist because yeah, people will all have kind of fresh insights and, and, and a complex perspective on Korean affairs but no I, I even though in some ways media landscape has changed a lot it's YouTube and everything but traditional media legacy media I don't think it's really changing. Mm -hmm. and, and that I felt acutely around the, the, in the first few months of the COVID crisis in 2020, uh, because I was starting to read a lot of what German media was saying about Asia and Asia's handling of the COVID crisis. And I'm like, yeah, they actually wrote things like in Korea, you have this uh, surveillance app that tracks people all the time. Yeah, and first time I saw that, I said, really? Right. And, then, and then I started to do a little research and I realized many of them are saying it. And all of this was untrue. I mean, you live in Korea and, and you know perfectly well, there sure. is an app for people in quarantine, mm -hmm. but there is no universal tracking app. No. And um, so I was like, wow, this is like not just problematic, but it's just fake news. And these are like respected German media that, uh, about which I knew nothing. And, and then I was starting to be incredibly disillusioned with, 
And then, and then I see other outlets that clearly feel like they have a need to cover Korea. But then why is the correspondent in Tokyo? I keep seeing that, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, why is this guy writing about kimchi? Hmm? I mean, if Japanese eat kimchi, good for them. But <laughs> uh, why is the story about kimchi in Korea being written by somebody in Japan? Yeah. This is a little weird, right? What happened to this so-called commitment to describing a reality mm. when your guy's not even in Korea. And, and also these long-standing practices like having a correspondent stashed in Hong Kong, Tokyo, Beijing, flying in once when there's some big story. But actually a lot of the work is done by the reporting assistant, the Korean reporting assistant, mm. right, who gets no credit. And, and how much of it has it really changed? But above all, the, most, the, the biggest problem is uh, that the perspective is not changing. Mm -hmm. right? Why are they not sending people who know more about Korea? So I talked to senior journalists, uh, editors in the industry, and they all get really defensive. They will say, oh, we're committed to, you know, uh, to accuracy. Sure. That's why we hire more locals or we hire people who speak the language. That is true when it's the Beijing Bureau, when it's the Shanghai Bureau, mm. uh, when it's the Delhi Bureau. But India has no shortage of highly educated people who write well in English as Indian nationals. Mm. Yeah, but Korea always gets the short, uh, yeah, short saw. And, uh, and, and I don't believe that there has been improvement in this regard, no matter what these outlets claim they're doing. Uh, that's why I always believe that the New York Times has, has done something right in keeping Che sang in his position for as long as I can remember mm. uh, as Seoul Bureau Chief. Um, very unique person, unique person in the industry as someone Korean who never went abroad, never studied overseas. But started at Korea Herald, went to AP, won a Pulitzer, became a New York Times employee. And, and he does something very different from what everybody else does. Because he has the experience and because he has the knowledge. And when you talk about what you were reading in, in Germany, I, I would speak to people back in the United Kingdom and they would tell me, yeah, but Korea's locked down or Korea is really suffering at the moment. And their perception of Korea from the reality that I was living was so far removed. And I would see headlines in The Guardian, like sort of record cases surge in Korea. And it, it would be sort of like 2000 cases at the time while the United Kingdom was having sort of 50,000. And so it, it was really interesting to see that the outside perception was completely different from the reality that was being lived here. And that was created by the media. and it didn't matter whether it was left or right, whether I'm reading The Guardian or things like that, that people really didn't have any clue of what was going on. So I, I can see why you would feel it so important to, to bring back the career expose, I think. May I say something about that? Yeah. I think a good example in this regard is um, the breathless reporting that Western media does whenever North Korea launches a missile. Mm. Right? And then an accompanying piece to that would be like North Korea's belligerence on display, but South Koreans uh, 
go, go about their lives undisturbed. <laughs> hmm? Like as if there's something wrong with South Koreans, right? That we need to have an explainer as to why Koreans are not rattled. They love that word, rattled. Hmm? Koreans are not rattled by North Korea's belligerents. So, and then they will interview people like, why are you not afraid? Even though uh, you are technically at war with North Korea. Why are you not afraid? And I'm like, have you actually ever thought about the fact that maybe there's something wrong with you hmm? in thinking that Koreans should be rattled, right? So, so it's always from that outside perspective, like Koreans are in a bubble, but no, you guys are in a bubble too. And, uh, and we see this on display yet again now with Ukraine, actually. Yeah. Hmm? Now they were talking about the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. I see articles coming out, reporters <laughs> talking about how uh, Russia, it's Ukraine's doorstep, but Ukrainians uh, go about their lives undisturbed. Not and then they will do interviews like, why are you not afraid? And they're like, like what do you want us to do? Mm. Run away? Hmm? Or should we go, oh my God, oh my God, and then just panic? Mm -hmm. this is who we are this is our life and uh, like we still have jobs we still need to make money mm -hmm. and uh so so that kind of um, outsider bias is always on display but it's been acute when it comes to assessing the the let's say the inter-korean situation mm -hmm. and and the the seeming weirdness of south korean's ability to remain calm in the face of this great adversity. I filed a piece uh, this afternoon. I'm going to go and check for the words vibrant, rattled or belligerent. And if I've used any of them, I'm going to quickly <laughs> de delete them. Those three I've got written down there. They're part of the uh, grand narrative. I'll, I'll try to deconstruct it. Um, just looking at this. So if we get because I want to make sure we get there soon. And, and so some of your writing at the moment, and I, I look at the, the headlines and the, uh, the topics you're covering in the career expose. And it's, I think it's wonderful because sometimes it's the kind of stuff that you shouldn't really be saying in polite company at the dinner table, because you know, there's going to be a reaction from it. You're, you're hitting on the things that really get down into the depth of it. The most recent one uh, was on the what you described as the hypocrisy of the current ruling administration for banning speech critical of North Korea that might possibly reach North Korean citizens. Uh, and you've said that non-governmental organizations such as your own OpenNet have criticized these recent laws for restricting freedom to communicate and infringing on access to information. Now, this yeah, is... I just interject and yeah. say, I didn't say that it's, uh, it was our contributor, Professor uh, Park Kyung-sin, who said it. Thank you for checking me. There we go. The... <laughs> <laughs> it was Professor Park Hyoshin? Hyunshin? Park Kyung-sin. Uh, Kyung okay, thank you. Uh, yeah. I'll check that. Um, for many not familiar with South Korea, I, I think this idea, if we just touch on it, then um, it, it it seems counterintuitive to me, Seung, because or to other people, because, you know, there's this idea of engagement with North Korea, but at the same time, there's this restriction 
of information that can go to North Korea. Can you, how do you understand this? I mean, so you've, you've published this piece in the expose. It might have been written by Professor uh, Park Yong Shin, but how do you understand this situation? I mean, it's a no brainer. Um, the government wants to please Pyongyang. They, they want to reconcile with North Korea, but on terms that North Korea and the North Korean regime is happy with. And that includes making sure that um, criticism about the regime does not get through to North Korea. This is one thing that North Korea has expressed deep uh, dissatisfaction with for quite some time. Mm. Is uh, these leaflets being flown by by dissidents in South Korea um, and insulting the North Korean regime and the Kim family? So there have been demands on South Korea to put a stop to it. And it is, in fact, what uh, the government under Moon Jae-in has, in fact, done. And I mean, it, it, is it counterintuitive? I don't think so. It's it's perfectly logical. Uh, it's um, you want to um, giving restarting economic exchange with North Korea is something that North Korea has wanted mm-hmm. because they want the money. Right? And, um, and uh, uh, announcing an official end to the Korean War. That is also something that North Korea has been open to. And that is what the South Korean side has offered on the Moon Jae-in. Yeah, and, and the administration sees these things as carrots mm-hmm. to bring North Korea back to the negotiation table in the hopes that one day maybe we achieve denuclearization or some kind of a resolution of the current stalemate uh, so that we can move away from this uh, perpetual phase of, uh, I hate that word, but tension, mm. and, and uh, towards something more permanent. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, the critics say that this goes too far. Um, uh, David, your screen has gone kind of blurry. I don't know if your camera has gone out of focus. Just mm. pointing it out in case this affects your My- video be something with the internet connect i think it's when the bandwidth goes down but okay we don't need to see my face too much i look more handsome blurred (laughs) well um i think that goes to everybody but um it's uh yeah so as part of the 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 set of the gift set of carrots Mm -hmm. Uh, one one more item that is going into this box that is now the suppression of the leaflet activities. Sure. And, and it makes perfect sense. Right? And, and when you talk about how this infringes on freedom of speech or human rights, the position not only of the Moon Jae-in government, but also of the No Muyan government mm. from 2000, let's see, three to 2008, was that, yeah, these things are for later. We can ultimately bring about improvement in North Korea by first engaging with them and uh, coaxing them to come back to the table. Mm. So they will not think about the implications of their actions, meaning the South Korean government's actions for the time being. Mm-hmm. It's. I like the analogy of it's just another carrot in the box we try to give or south korean administrations will try to give what they can to achieve certain goals which might be the end of war declaration um i do apologize for making that mistake with the site i hope you know i'm not 
a god either i'm fallible i did try really hard with the research i'm sure you saw some of I'm the sure effort. You um a lot of my just before we move on from this one a lot of my international students and i say this with no disrespect to them because they're fantastic but they're so drawn to the idea of studying north korea sometimes more than south korea i get the impression sometimes oh. that it feels like for, for some of them, I can't speak for them, but North Korea is a puzzle to be solved. That if only we think about it this way, or if we have this attitude, we'll slowly sort of unravel this uh, belligerent nation that's firing off the missiles, as the grand narratives put it elsewhere. I'm not sure. My question is, do you do you see other people outside of Korea having a fascination with North Korea as like a as a conundrum, as something to be solved rather than understanding it through that own North Korean lens with North Korean people with their dreams, their hopes, their toothaches and things like that? Yeah, yeah it's a it's a constant. Uh, it's a constant situation, really. And again, going back to this idea of grand narratives, uh, I do blame the media for perpetuating this fascination in the first place mm. right how often do we th read articles about north korea as that weird country right right uh, how many uh, how many countries leaders are portrayed in hollywood movies and dramas as uh, this uh, uh, curious dictator on par with dr <laughs> dr evil mm -hmm. <laughs> in his weird uniform with his weird haircut so it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think we absolutely need to blame the media for doing this. Although they always say, but don't you think that North Korea is kind of weird? And I never say North Korea is not weird, but there are many weird countries around the world, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, how many of you write about Eritrea with, uh, with mandatory military conscription that has compelled many of the citizens to to flee and become refugees overseas. Mm? Like, how many of you really write seriously about the Turkmenistan? Mm. Mm? And uh, we, it's like North Korea, and then they bring up the nuclear weapon code, but they have nuclear weapon. Okay, I, I concede that, and this is something to take seriously. But if it's a serious country, then write about it seriously. Mm -hmm. Do not write about it as a joke. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And as, a, as one friend, uh, a senior journalist in the, the English language media scene often says that, uh, that even, even his own company treats North Korea not as a politics or international news item, but they, they treat it as a humor piece. Yeah, once again, it's like a weird Korea story. Mm. Look at Kim Jong-un's wife's handbag. Is it genuine Gucci? <laughs> Does she have a Chanel? Mm. Or did Kim Jong-un really feed his uncle to dogs? Right? Granted, that was more of a Daily Mail story than a Guardian story. But, but, but still, this, um, this understanding of North Korea is something to treat as a gossip. It, I think it's shared by like just about all media outlets out there in non-Korean language uh, media industry. It's when you mention other uh, nations and, and, and states with very serious problems, Turkmenistan, for example, and 
it's the the staying power of North Korea in that global grand narrative is quite something, isn't it? I mean, it's because you see what happens with Afghanistan or something like that. We all have to care about it so much. And then it, and then who's writing about it now? And things really go up and down. The staying power of North Korea in that global grand narrative. Uh, how do you explain that, Seung? Do you have a take on that one? Yeah, um, it come, it's because um, North Korea comes as a set with South Korea. Mm. And, and the two of them being side by side, it always kind of, it, let's say, um, uh, what's the word? It um, brings the, the difference of the other more into relief. And, and, it, this, and it functions in the same way also within South Korea. Mm-hmm. And in, in Korea, it's been pointed out that one reason that it was so difficult to achieve transition to democracy was because of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, the military dictatorship, for example, we say that look at North Korea hmm, and how terrible they are. Huh? And you have it good here. Mm-hmm. And we need to make sure we don't become like that. Hmm? That's why we cannot have full democracy. <laughs> this is why we cannot have human rights, which is ironic because you would think, doesn't that make us more like North Korea? Mm-hmm. But that's not how the rhetoric has functioned. This what well, we what um, scholars call the national, the rhetoric of national security. Mm-hmm. Huh? We need to defend ourselves so that we don't become like North Korea, even though in that in itself makes us more like North Korea. Um, and, and South Korea, North Korea being side by side, they're always compared. Mm. So when you say South Korean democracy has problems, then they say, but look at North Korea. Mm. Right? and how terrible it is. And then when they describe North Korea, they will bring out South Korea and say, unlike its vibrant democratic Southern counterpart, mm. North Korea has suffered for decades on the brutal regime. Right? It's, um, I think it's that contrast that really works to continue to reinforce. Huh? And then, as I said, they together get presented as examples of the weird Korean nature. Mm-hmm. Right? You've got the plastic surgery obsessed South Koreans, and then you have the, um, the starving oppressed North Koreans. And, and, and that contrast, I think, continues to feed that fascination as well. That's... Uh... A, a very honestly fascinating way of understanding it, that it's the contrast, it's not one in isolation, but it's the two that makes the set. I think we could talk about Nambukwange or North Korea and South Korea for a while, but I, I want to make a, a turn, if I can, to towards China. We have the Olympics in Beijing at the moment, and did you write the piece, Understanding Korea's Hatred for China? You wrote that. Oh, okay, right. <laughs> I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. I was trying to check my own research. I've now realized I am fallible. Um, there does seem to be an anti-Chinese sentiment in Korea today. And there are historical, political uh, reasons, cultural reasons for this. There's a huge backstory that could go back to Tangun and Gija, that could go back to, you mentioned the Chinese residents' uh, discrimination under Park Chung-hee, Thad, and so on. Uh, I want to ask you, Seung, how would you describe anti-Chinese sentiment in Korea today? How does it 
sort of manifest? What does it feel like? And this is a question personally I've been looking at. Is anti-Chinese sentiment a euphemism for racism or what's the difference between those two things? And I don't know, are they the same or are they different? And where is the line? I mean, it's not racism in the sense that um, Chinese is not a race. And, and we cannot also call Chinese an ethnicity mm -hmm. because it's a multi-ethnic state. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's a, what can we call it? It's a national bias with a long history. Mm. And, and it also really goes to illustrate the very complicated emotions and relationship that South Korea, or rather Koreans have had toward China for a very long time. Um, we could write books about this. Right? Mm. It's, it's not really something we can summarize in an article. But, um, but recently, looking at the debate on Hanbok, yeah. it was a reminder for me that, um, that how Koreans had very complex feelings toward China, not even in the 21st century, but going back simply centuries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And... and uh, uh, with Hanbok, there has been this debate about whether it's Chinese or Korean. And, uh, and I mean, to be honest, if you ask me, I think, yeah, it's, it's Korean costume. It's also worn by ethnic Koreans in China. And also it's been influenced by Chinese clothes, mm -hmm. Chinese fashion. Mm -hmm. And somehow we uh, today in the East Asian context seem not to have the ability to be able to acknowledge all these different truths because somehow they're seen as contradicting one another. And, and, and in the end, yeah, why are Koreans today so resistant to uh, acknowledging credit where it's due? Because, um, in fact, um, Koreans have for a long time looked down on China. This feeling actually got worse after the communist takeover. Mm -hmm. It's um, not only is China an enemy state because it abetted North Korea in the latter survival. Yeah. And, then, and then it became an economically very backward country too, until it opened up in the late 70s, early 80s. And then, and then overtook Korea. So there is a feeling of superiority toward China, which has suddenly uh, become difficult to justify because now China is a much bigger power. Mm. And that generates this anger and uncertainty and, and fear, which is now manifesting as a deep-seated hatred of China. Is there a worry that this fear, this anxiety, um, this feeling of superiority, these these feelings that you've mentioned, it is it being leveraged by politicians, by the the media for political gain? Because I, I worry that people will use it for their own benefit for for political gain. But once that monster is out of the bottle you can't really put it back in it, it it's hard i think is is it being leveraged like we see or is it is it more genuine i i think what i'm trying to ask is 
is it bottom up is it top down it's a combination of both but how do those two forces play onto this anti-chinese sentiment so it's everything all together right mm -hmm. i mean much as it's hard to say whether anti-japanese sentiment in korea is top down bottom up or something in between it's mm -hmm. all of it right and, and looking now at how the Korean media is handling this anti-Chinese sentiment and also looking at how the Korean politicians are using it, it's obvious that they have every intention to take full advantage of it. Mm. And, and, and here I say the disclaimer that I always feel like I have to say nowadays because it's so easy to be accused of somehow being pro-Chinese and defending China and overlooking problems in China. And that's certainly not what I want to do. Right. Yeah, China has many, many problems and I, I frankly don't really like what this government does, but it does not change the fact that you know, on the Korean side, that feeling it's, yeah, it's bubbling up and it's being amplified by media and it's being exploited by the political class, both on the right and on the left. We see that in the reaction to the recent controversies, like the ethnic Korean woman wearing hanbok, the Korean costume at the opening ceremony. Mm. She was one of 56 ethnic minority representatives. I yeah. mean, what do you expect? Here, the left side of the media have been more reasonable, right? running commentaries by experts saying like, as I just said, like, what do you want her to do? Huh? Mm -hmm. Do you want her to be excluded from the ceremony and you will not be offended? Huh? Do you want her to show up and not wear hanbok and you will not be offended? Or hmm? like what? What's the solution here? Mm -hmm. huh? and, and but but somehow it's uh, it doesn't seem to work. Right? Right. Reasonable voices when it comes to China no longer have any influence on shaping the discourse. We, as you said, the monster is out of the bottle. Has has it surprised you? Because only a few years ago, it was anti-Japan, very large. Mm. Uh, and and there was the sort of, um, what would you call it? The boycott of Japanese goods. There was elements- 2019. Of, yeah, elements of a trade war. Um, my, my young nephew was asked to go around the Dongne, the neighborhood and make a list of all the Japanese goods in the convenience stores. And then they put a big list on the classroom wall, said, these are the ones you're not allowed to buy. And I was, I was kind of. So that's interesting because, uh, yeah, that means teachers are also complicit in this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the, the reason I would ask you is it, it seemed that anti-Japanese sentiment seems so visceral and lasting then, but if we go forward three years to where we are now, that seems to have taken a backseat and, and replaced with this new anti-Chinese sentiment or hatred, whichever the word. So has that change surprised you? And does it mean that it could also go away and get better in the future? Mm. I mean, it's been building up for years. We've already, we've seen signs of this, uh, which is why, <laughs> I mean, it's come later. But much as anti-Japanese sentiment has not disappeared, I don't think anti-Chinese sentiment will disappear either. Mm -hmm. and, and it's always so interesting to me when uh, Japanese scholars or Japanese government officials, they come out and say that Koreans need to just get over their emotions. 
So I don't think this anti-Chinese sentiment will really go away because we have seen it building up over the years. Right? Mm -hmm. And even though anti-Japanese sentiment has taken a backseat, that hasn't gone away either. Sure. Sort of like simmering on the back burner uh, until something else happens and it gets brought forward. Right. It's, um, I, I'm always struck when Japanese scholars or Japanese government officials say, like um, Koreans really need to get over this because don't they realize how important a partnership we have between the two countries, right? the economic exchange, the political partnership, we're both American allies, uh, they're losing out on so much. And then, and then I always like to say, don't you realize that for these people, it's an emotional issue. Mm. Uh, it's not a practical issue. So you cannot tell them they need to get over it. It just doesn't work. Sure. Right. And, and we see that same level of emotions now um, directed at China, which is why I think it's not going to be able, possible to uh, resolve them anytime soon. Hmm. And why I think also as well, just to what we started with that, Sometimes I think statistics and data don't quite describe it because as you say, Seung, it's an emotion, it's a feeling and it just numbers don't quite always get that thing. On, in terms of the, the wearing of the hanbok at the opening ceremony, you said something along the lines of that it's hard to come to terms with the idea that there are multiple historical truths and that sometimes these might be in contradiction to each other history is still being written. You've explored that in your looking at um, Korean dramas. And you said perhaps the most popular drama in the country, if I'm correct, is demanding ideological purity from cultural producers. I've often felt so that in some countries the the very uh, the conversation that you shouldn't transgress or get wrong, it might be race, or in another one, it might be gender, or another one, it might be class. In Korea, I felt that about history sometimes, that that that's the one that, you know, you really shouldn't make a mistake on. How have you, and you talk about Snowdrop in one of your pieces, the, the sort of high teen romance with Jisoo from Blackpink, and it it's strange to me, so I'd like to get your take why some dramas are very highly, heavily criticized for lacking ideological and historical purity, while others, haguks, uh, with these beautiful handbooks walking around in the palaces, people love them and there's no sort of conversation about the reality of those. Uh, how is that conversation in your mind based on your articles? How is that history playing out in dramas? So there are untouchables in Korean history. Some things cannot be, to use the, the word, um, distorted in Korean. And, and we, we see that, um, that there are certain kind of figures, hallowed figures in Korean history yeah. that should not be touched. Um, the Admiral Lee Sun-sin being a good example, the late 16th century, Korean admiral who defeated the Japanese and saved the nation from a certain doom. Mm. Um, Sejong has become another, yes. the fourth king of Joseon, who is credited with uh, inventing hunger. Um, and then now we're looking at certain, the founding figure of Joseon also is now untouchable. His 
uh, his uh, son who became the third king, Tejo. Yeah. So there are a few of these that we are, it seems as though um, it's not possible to say anything about uh, on, that deviates from this accepted narrative of who they were. Mm. Even though I know from reading and talking to Korean historians who specialize in these people, that there's a lot more that is not part of the mainstream understanding. Mm. Uh, so that's why we saw you know, another recent drama called The Red Sky, where they just decided before they aired it, okay, we would not call them who they are really supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's like... <laughs> Um, Korean expression for this is you cover your eyes and make a sound pretend that there was no sound um, or, or a turkey burying its head in the sand mm-hmm. this approach to history it seems to be a one way to deal with it so you can do historical costume dramas as long as it's not perceived as an insult to any accepted historical reality mm-hmm. So you would have a king, you would have a prince. Um, that's okay, but we don't give them names. Right. Mm-hmm. So that nobody can say this is a reference to that period of our history. And, uh, and also there are certain things that have clearly become glorified to the point of becoming like canonized. And, and Korea's democracy movement is another. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I think if you can make a drama about it and, and, and people will have the understanding that it's not about history, mm. but, but that's not how the attitude has become. Like even mentioning it in a way that does not conform to the narrative has become problematic. So there was a drama uh, a while back where they featured, uh, I was called Taxitai, so about an independence uh, uh, fighter in the colonial period. Mm-hmm. And they featured a Japanese character who did not conform to that stereotype of an evil Japanese occupier. Now I see that being raised um, belatedly as uh, evidence that the writer mm. of that show, who actually wrote Snowdrop, it's the same writer, mm. uh, clearly had harbors secretly pro-Japanese sympathies. Mm-hmm. But like, why can't we have a character in the colonial period who does not conform to the stereotype of the Japanese? Sure. You might say that it's the same in every country. Why is it history? Why are there untouchables? So I, I suggested at the start of this little part that maybe in other countries that the topic might be class or, or race. Or, but here, to me at least, it felt like history. There were certain things that you can... Is, is that just the same everywhere? Or is, is there a specific focus on Korea on history with untouchable narratives? And if so, why is it? Or So uh, the Chinese are doing it too. Yeah. Right. It's, uh, it's become more common in the Chinese uh, drama industry to do these so-called fantasy costume dramas. So you have people wearing beautiful Chinese clothing, flying around in the sky, doing uh, sword battles, but, but it's in a dynasty we never heard about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we recognize no emperor, we recognize no concubine. That kind of dynamic is in place precisely because of censorship. 
it's become dangerous in China to talk about history. So rather than trying to do it only in the correct fashion, they just make non-historical history, fictional history. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, that really goes to show how much China and Korea today have in common, this intense nationalism mm. that has made it very difficult to question any conventional truth. Yeah. And about that, I think Korea really needs to be ashamed. Right? The fact that it is actually becoming like the country that it deeply despises. What does it say about themselves? Do you have any sense of why it's going that way? Because you would imagine with the continued uh, liberalization and democratization of South Korea, there's no martial law, there's no military government. An intuition would tell you it would be going the other way. There would be an opening up... uh, a revisiting of history and more liberal attitudes towards it. So do you get a sense of why it's going that way? Some argue that um, Korea has become more confident. Mm. It's um, that rightly so. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, despite the pandemic, I believe that Korea's uh, trade figure for last year actually increased. And, um, and I read that now it's the eighth biggest uh, export nation in the in the world uh, please correct me if i'm wrong but but anyway the figures have looked very good yeah and also we we cannot forget that korea way has become very successful i mean uh, looking at the the latest uh, netflix drama you are all dead about zombies in a school uh, it's also number one now mm-hmm. for how many days i forget so all these things combined, right? successes of BTS, Blackpink, um, it's, it's a very good time for Korea. And, and that has certainly increased the confidence of the nation and of its people. But it's also manifesting as um, extreme uh, nationalism. Mm. Right? Look at us, we're doing so well. And it, it gives them the, the sense that they should be more assertive, that they can be forceful. That itself is not a bad thing, as long as it's done in the right way. Mm. But, but instead, it seems to be, unfortunately, let's say, um, adding to an existing kind of superiority complex and an existing narrative of Korea as an exceptional country, mm. which... Um, Koreans learn, myself included, uh, growing up. And, uh, and, and I don't think as a whole, that's a good thing. With this and let's not forget that, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but, and let's not forget that China has, you know, engaged in some quite petty disputes with Korea as well. Yeah. Um, and, and providing the provocation necessary for these displays of Korean nationalism to, to come out in full force. So, so we do need to think about that as well, but that's also the effect of China becoming more assertive, more confident, and, uh, and feeling empowered to do what it wants. And when you have two countries who are like that, mm-hmm. side by side, then clearly there is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, the Korean actions are definitely not happening in a vacuum. There's a 
broader context here. I posted on my Twitter a, a week ago, like happy Solal and I, a picture of Toku and happy Lunar New Year. Un, inundated with tweets, happy Chinese New Year, happy Chinese New Year, happy Chinese New Year. You know, it became real to me how this plays out. And I guess, you know, I didn't find it personally offensive, but I can understand how some people, if they're on the receiving end of those kind of, it seems like a bombardment against their culture, they might very well feel attacked. When you mentioned the cultural successes, um, saying of sort of BTS and Blackpink and thing like that, I'm, I'm going to shift it now to this to this other idea, which is of it's brought about Korea booze. And this is I've never really actually written about this before. I've always kind of stayed away from it. I'm not sure why, but because I'm unsure about it. Korea booze, these people that have a great love and infatuation for Korea, for Korean culture, for the dramas, for the music. But then does it does it sort of tend toward fetishization or is it just a how do you understand this phenomenon that's arisen saying of korea booze and is it something that you know could be seen as both positive and negative or is it a little bit more problematic than that so let's not forget that um, korea booze um, while interesting I'm not the only example of people who are trying to kind of adapt to or integrate into another culture to that extent. Um, that's what I really wanted to insist on in my piece as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many times we hear about people who are in love with Paris? Uh, they want to become Parisian, mm -hmm. move there, learn the language, get a place, mm -hmm. adapt to French fashion. I mean, we know about this. And, um, and Japan also had similar phenomenon, maybe not to the same extent um, at this point as it was before. So I think we need to look at it in that context. Yeah. There are always people who kind of idealize or romanticize uh, something that they are not part of. Maybe because they're unhappy with their own current identities, who knows. But mm. um, we need to see this in also another context how korean government has never shied away from saying it's really happy to see foreigners becoming korean right mm. putting them in hanbok making photos uh, korean universities do that too mm. or korean students surrounded by foreign students in uh, some university pamphlet doing this yeah okay. you might have been uh, roped into doing that as well at some point i, I don't know yeah. <laughs> or eating kimchi on TV and going, Masisayo. Mm -hmm. right? Done it. Yeah, uh, I've done it. Or, or uh, Sarangeo Korea. And then foreigners saying like one sentence in Korea and then they just become so happy. Like, Your Korean is so good. Mm. And um, so, in a way, I guess you could argue they kind of uh, reap what they sowed. <laughs> but, but of course, um, some of these Korea booths go to an interesting um, extent mm. in, in just showing how much they love Korea. And, and, and certainly now that's being perceived as insulting. Mm -hmm. And, and like they are they're as if they are appropriating Korean identity, usurping it. 
and, and, and adopting a culture over which they have no claim. So, so in a way, we go from one extreme to the other extreme. And, and, and that's an interesting thing to see. I, I completely get that flip that you're describing because I've never felt that from my personal experience, cultural appropriation was a big thing in Korea. Like you say, the Korean people wanted you to wear the hanbok, wanted you to try the food, to speak in Korean, to sing the songs. And it, it sort of gave further weight to the Korean brand or glow. But, it, but it's interesting to see that now you said it might be reaping what they sow, but it's interesting to see how for some people that switched a little bit and it's become a little bit problematic to wear the hanbok, to embrace these Korean things. And I guess people would suggest, yeah, but you need to understand the history or the language. You need to have a deeper understanding beyond these superficial manifestations that are visible. I think it has to do with the confidence that we were speaking about earlier. Yeah. Right? When it was... Uh, hard to make the case that Korean culture is something to be valued. Mm. Naturally, they wanted foreigners to come and validate it by, by partaking in it, by putting it on, by eating it, by praising it. But now, Korean culture has been validated. Mm -hmm. right? So obviously, we have no need for people to come and validate it for us. In fact, the power to validate it, validate it should lie with us. Mm -hmm. And it belongs to us. We are the custodians of this great culture. How dare you come and try to get a piece of it? Mm. So yeah. I think that kind of really shows that change in dynamic that we were talking about earlier. Also regard to Korea, China, and how they're fighting. I've... I've often believed you talk about this changing dynamic between the two that, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong or you see it differently, Seung, that some of South Korea's strengths as, it, as it's achieved this incredible success, of course, there are many problems with South Korean society, but the rise and, and what it has achieved is fantastic and in many ways undeniable. I wonder if some of that was built on this kind of underdog mentality that, you know, we're going to, I know you've talked about superiority over China and Japan, but this kind of we're going to get there, we're going to sort of rise up and show who we are. And I wonder now if that underdog mentality, I'm not sure if underdog is the right word, was one of the keys to success. But now it's achieved that, then what does it do? Is the, the thing that propelled it towards that great thing then gone away? Has it lost one of its strengths? Do you, do you see that? Do you see it differently? What's your take on that, Zoom? I mean, nothing lasts forever. <laughs> I, I often say to people, yeah, it's a great time for Korea, but maybe this last five years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people will hate me for saying this, but that is the nature of culture. Mm -hmm. Things come in fashion and things fall out of fashion. Mm. Um, look at how popular Japan was. Right. And, and while it still is a well-regarded country, we fascinating culture you know it doesn't really command that hype as it used to do and now it's korea's turn mm -hmm. which means that um, some other country will come along next yeah right? and um and korea needs to be prepared for that and also constantly reinvent itself too and mm. and in fact um, they need to think about innovation but instead what i see 
as a direct result of this um, rising nationalism and censorship imposed by it is that Korean culture already shows signs of stagnating. Mm -hmm. right? when, how many generic movies and dramas can you make about uh, uh, glorifying some aspect of Korean history? People will get tired of that. And uh, yeah, while Korea has been praised for sort of uh, opening a new frontier in the zombie genre of filmmaking, how many zombie movies and dramas can they make before people get tired of it? Mm -hmm. What is next? Mm. So, so without that innovation, this momentum will not be easy to sustain. And I hope Koreans do see that. But you... perhaps it's, uh, this fervor of nationalism at the moment is simply too blinding. And anyway, they just reached a peak now. So maybe it's a little early to talk about the decline. What about the next peak, Seung? Do you have any idea? Because I, I feel like it could be a green, like, you know, green energy country. Or it could be a metaverse country with all these talk, or it could be a, a middle power country. Do you have any idea what it might be or what you would like it to be that next peak? If it's not soft power cultural success, what could it aim towards next? <sighs> This is something that I may not be able to or may not want to answer because um, I see too many so-called experts making predictions. Mm, yeah. Uh, none of which come true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, a friend of mine recommended me a book called The Babble Fish. Okay. It's about the, the whole industry of uh, media pundits who make predictions. Okay. Mm? And they sound so convincing, but none of which come true. So, but, but why is it that we keep asking experts for predictions when we know that they would not come true? So, so maybe that's one reason why I kind of want to shy away from this. But maybe we can go back to the, the question you asked earlier and that I did not quite answer. What's driven Korea to get to this point? Mm. Right. And it's ultimately, I think, uh, you, 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 what you call the underdog mentality, I would actually say desire. Um, connecting it back to what we discussed in the beginning, what Korea's modernization and its claiming of a new national identity. Mm -hmm. um, somehow they realized that the world is their oyster. Right? There are all these possibilities that they never even entertained, things that they could get and achieve. And, and that's really been on display, I feel, uh, over the course of 20, 20th century and beyond. Right? They wanted uh, economic development. They wanted democracy. And many people on a personal level, they wanted higher education. And look now, 80% of young people going to university. Right? Kind of crazy figure if you put it in the context of even uh, the OECD. Agreed. Right? So they've achieved many things and they still want more. But somehow we're getting to a point where maybe people start to recognize that not everybody can want things and, and, and have it all. Mm -hmm. right? Partly because it's unequal and partly because there's only so much that the economy can grow and accommodate. So I hope that the next thing they want is maybe a more moderating force. Right? 
So let's say a balance in in the distribution of wealth, for instance. Mm, right. I mean, I see so many rich people in Korea now, whereas the poor are practically invisible. Uh, can I? I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. It's okay. Fine. So you're leaving. Have a good time, huh? Yeah. Can you message me when you arrive? Sorry your about that. Your partner wants you to go skiing with him. No, 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 no. Um, I, I already, I can ski, but it's not my favorite thing. And I, I wanted him to spend some time with his friends so I can write a lecture I need to give next week. <laughs> What's the lecture? Um, can I ask? Is it? It's about the uh, kind of the theme of social justice in Korean cultural products. And, and how it's kind of manifesting itself also within the Korean cultural, culture fan communities. Um, like um, you remember the BTS fans or others were getting involved in uh, this um, attempt to, to fool Donald Trump into yeah. thinking that he was gonna have this massive rally. Mm. Uh, so and so it's kind of a very broad talk um, i also wanted to talk about some k-pop fans that are appealing for help uh in facing injustice like the burmese fans at the moment like asking the k-pop community to rally behind them in fighting military coup so so there are some interesting kind of phenomenon that are taking place so so i'm kind of putting it together as a, as a talk at a university in the US. Two PhD students are doing research on the Burmese K-pop fans using K-pop as a, as, as a conduit or a channel to get their pleas for democracy out to Europe. And they contacted me and did an interview with me. And then yesterday I spoke to a Burmese uh, human rights advocate and asked him about this and he had no idea, but I think it's a, fascinating thing i want to go to economic inequality but before that do you have any thought just while we're here on the idea that these kind of uh i forget what word you use not progressive values social justice values um that they're often for outside of korea not for domestically in korea like the the k-pop and the advert it, it's for a better world outside in burma in black lives matter in anti-donald trump and and in and in europe as well but in korea it, i don't see much in korean about using k-pop as a vehicle for political and social change no maybe they realize that it's bound to be controversial yeah it's a I country agree. where it's become so difficult to weigh into any topic without eliciting some kind of backlash. Mm -hmm. I, I, we had some celebrities uh, expressing support for feminism a few years back yeah. when um, Kim Ji Young born in 1982, when that book became enormously successful. There were a few female celebrities uh, posting pictures with that book on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's when we really started to see how feminism was becoming a controversial topic in Korea because of the backlash these women faced. 
And, and it was fashionable then to say they are feminists, but not anymore. Nobody will do that. That's a career suicide. Yeah. And uh, so for many reasons, I think um, uh, that's why Korean celebrities will really only get involved in a few things. Donating money to charity. Yeah. This is okay. Especially when it's for uh, people from the lower income bracket. Mm-hmm. Or... Uh, yeah, um, children growing up with our parents or being raised by their grandparents uh, or elderly people living alone with no support. You can donate to these things. These are uncontroversial. Mm. Or you can be an ambassador for the tax office saying, please pay your taxes and contribute to the nation. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, they don't, they don't really do that. And because um, if it's hard. And if the celebrities don't step out and say, this is what I want, then of course the fans will not do that either. It's, it's interesting to me because I, I guess I come from a culture where celebrities would take a political side. They might support a political party, be photographed with the prime minister or speak out on certain issues. And uh, I'm not saying that should happen in Korea, or I'm not saying that it, it, it doesn't on certain ways, but it does seem a little bit more apolitical amongst the celebrity base. You said it might be, you know, certain issues might be career suicide. Shall we, just before we uh, perhaps try to wrap this up, you mentioned this idea of economic inequality. And I, I feel like sometimes it gets missed, perhaps, saying because South Korea, as you say, is like in, in one of the top 10 economies in the world. It, it is producing and it's, you know, pushed by these tables or degiops, these huge uh, conglomerates is on the ground level. Do you get a sense that economic inequality is a real worry? Is there, a, you know, solutions like universal basic income or sort of the there was the big promise of the breaking up of the chebol and trying to get them to work more with with the youth how do you uh, understand economic inequality today beyond an economic fact about how it affects the the layout of society there's a lot of money and people see that and people see it very clearly thanks to social media mm. I mean, now we have even heads of these chatbot firms opening Instagram accounts and posting pictures. Right. Best example being Chong Yong-jin, the vice chairman of the Sinsege Group, which owns eMart. So when you see that level of wealth on display and, and, and you can just use your smartphone to see that, I think it really changes how people relate to wealth. No longer an invisible thing, it's an everyday reality and it makes people aspirational, even though it is certainly beyond the means of many. Uh, I think we saw this dynamic uh, in the course of the scandal that involving that Korean influencer Song Jia, right. AKA Frisia, uh, because um, yeah, she claimed, or she didn't claim, but she definitely appeared to be a very wealthy individual mm. and it turned out not to be the case and people are angry about it. But the bigger question was, why did these young people even follow this woman in the first place? Because she was rich. Mm. Mm. And, and now we have a very strange cult of money 
in effect. And this is an expression that I didn't come up with, even Korean media was using it, right? How did uh, this country turn it, uh, embrace this cult of money mm. that um, they are willing to follow and admire anyone who is just born with it? I mean, what did what do children of third generation children of Chebol really do to deserve this, other than the fact that they were born into this family, these families? But somehow it still makes them an object of admiration. Yeah. And and that is really goes to show how Korea, the society as a whole, uh, interacts with this notion of wealth. With the cult of money, we started with religion and beliefs, and now we're on to to the cults. So, I want to, if I can, try to wrap this up. And I have a couple more questions for you. And the first one is this having listened to you for the last couple of hours and heard the things that you've said um what can somebody like me do to write about korea better <laughs> so but you understand the reason for asking this question i, I, I you've seen you've expressed a lot of thoughts about uh, where the media is, the missteps that uh, people take sometimes, the words such as vibrant, rattled, belligerence, the grand narratives. And I've listened, I've taken all this in. I think it's very interesting. And so I'm just wondering then what what is the step that improves it? What's the, the uh, productive next thing? So, I mean, I laugh only because um, the assumption in this question is that somehow that I write well, and I certainly never believe that to be the case. I, I write as well as I can mm. within the <laughs> within my own limited capabilities. But I think um, one important thing is to be open-minded. I, I, I see a lot of people coming to Korea and writing about Korea with very fixed ideas of what the country is about. There's a lot going on that you do not see, especially if you don't talk to Koreans and do not speak the language. Mm. So I would certainly think that, um, that cultivating that aptitude is an important aspect of this. Mm. You don't see the nuance. I mean, um, you see a word like, um, what would be a good example? Um, let's say in this article about uh, opinion piece about uh, South Korean government banning leaflets to North Korea. And there's a word in the law called solpa, mm -hmm. right, which I translated as distribution. Mm -hmm. but, but depending on how you understand it as distribution, it could mean circulation, it could mean spraying. Huh? And, and it changes the nuance, it changes the situation. And if you don't see that, uh, you don't get it. You don't get why this is important. Um, you asked me a question in the, the list that you sent me about the, 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 uh, some of the popular words from 2021. Right. Right. And, uh, and you, you were asking me, how, how did I <laughs> come to see them and, and, and realize that they are actually in, in vogue. Mm. And, and it's because I, I read a lot and, and I see it in circulation. Mm. And, and that's important for me in presenting to my readers that this is actually a thing, mm. that I'm not just picking any random like neologism or new word and saying, 
this is fashionable. Right? I need to be convinced myself that it is fashionable, but to be convinced, I need to see it in use. Right? How often, in what context, by whom. So, so that's really what I think people should do um, in, in before kind of presenting this picture of Korea. Because uh, in the end, I think as um, people who specialize in a country, uh, we are we're all generalizing to varying extents. Mm. I mean, we have to. Otherwise, it's impossible to write about anything uh, unless you're going to put a disclaimer that like this article only describes a very specific situation that concerns of a certain number of Koreans uh, whose numbers we really cannot tell, but but it's there. Sure. So we're all generalizing and the responsibility in generalizing as any writer whether it's a blogger, YouTuber, podcaster, reporter with a legacy media, mm. is to make sure that there's enough there that uh, legitimizes your generalization. And I feel that many Western media outlets simply don't have the capacity to check whether their generalization is legitimate. Your uh, neologisms was definitely legitimate. Because I, I, I tested, <laughs> my nephew was kind of doing all this when he read them, he was loving it. And he was like, we say that all the time. We say that all the time. And it just, it moved me so because I sometimes read pieces, but then I'll, I'll, I'll go and speak to Korean people and they're like, what's that? And it, it feels like they're, you're speaking a different language to them. They don't understand it. But with that list of words that you, you, you came up with, yeah, very real. Uh, of course, not every Korean, but a legitimate amount to make it worthwhile. Yeah, I, I thought it was good. And all most, a lot of those words, disclaimer, a lot of those words were about the economy. Mm. A lot of those words were about the flexing and how people are dealing with that, right? Um, the last question. So we're all in this world together. What is the purpose of life? what should we be living for and how can we make more people's experiences here more rewarding and valuable mm. i think uh, as long as we're alive we should do at least some good in society right mm. whether it's to improve uh, our perception of the world to motivate people to do better things to, to live not only for ourselves, but for other people. Uh, and, and that means also to mobilize uh, help or uh, an awareness of the problems that other people face. Mm. That's what I think makes life uh, meaningful. Of course, I mean, uh, it shouldn't all be chores. Uh, if that really makes you miserable to do these things, then maybe, this is not for you, but at least in my case, um, uh, I think I see value in, in education and having conversations and starting discussions. And even if people disagree with me, I think it's important to let others know that there's another way of looking at things. And, and, and unfortunately in contemporary Korea, it's not done maybe as in as much as it should be. Mm. I, 
I like the idea of trying to mobilize help for those in need and to be educated and to start discussions. I mean, it's it's not a grand plan or anything like that, but it's day to day real stuff. I think that does make a difference. And I think that's they're great words. So they're great words. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to you today. <laughs> I hope so, because this was long. Yeah. Are you um, actually putting all two hours up online or are you going to be trimming it? This is going to be one of the first times because obviously I will trim the, the toilet breaks and things like that because yeah. I, I don't normally trim them, um, but I'll do my best. I do all this by myself, so I'll do my best, but I, I'm just going to keep it other than the back and forth. So I'll keep it all in there. Um, and let me ask you, if I may. Uh, please do. Yes. What makes life meaningful for you, David? I think it's, I wasn't prepared for that saying you've put me on the spot. Um, I think it changes, but at the moment I'm trying to, I read this quote in uh, a book by um, uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah. And uh, he said, the one of the things that we should do in life is take the possibilities of our genes and our social and physical environment and make something meaningful from that. And I thought that was really nice because we all have different social and physical environments. We all have different uh, genes, but we have to look towards the possibilities of these things and then make something meaningful from the possibilities that we have in front of us. And I think from that, it's important to, to keep the possibilities high to be a little bit, you know, I'm kind of cynical sometimes, but I take that Gramsci and, you know, cynical of the mind, positive of the soul and keep those possibilities high and try and make things really meaningful. I'm not sure if that makes any sense, but. It makes sense to me. Mm. <laughs> Good.